I mean, it's a, it's a different date. It's a different weekend every year. Sometimes it's in, it's in March. Sometimes it's at the beginning of April. Sometimes it's, it's toward the end of April. What's up with that? It's later this year due to global warming. But seriously, folks, when I, when I tell you how they determine when Easter is, you're going to think I'm joking. Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox. This is what they came up with. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And this, by the way, is exactly what happens when you form a committee. <laughs> All they wanted was give us a date for Easter. Second Sunday in April, they come up with this. And you know what Mark Twain says about a committee. A committee is a group of the unwilling picked from the unfit to do the unnecessary. But I digress. Now this is interesting. 40 days prior to Easter is Ash Wednesday, which begins the Lenten period. It begins Lent. The day prior to Ash Wednesday is Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, is the final day of Carnival, which is a three-day celebration where Back in the Middle Ages, when Mardi Gras originated, there was no way to store meat. The result was a huge party where people would gorge themselves with all the meat they had so it wouldn't spoil during the 40 days of Lent, where fasting was a widespread custom. Interesting to note, the word carnal means pertaining to the flesh. So this is where we get the word carnivore or carnival. But of all the days we celebrate in the world of Christianity, Resurrection Sunday is the biggest. Christmas, which celebrates the birth of the Christ child, is a biggie. Good Friday, which of course was last Friday, we had a combined uh, service with all the evangelical churches of Superior, which was a, a great time. Uh, Good Friday, which uh, that commemorates the crucifixion, is a big one too. And of course it all works in harmony, but Easter is what pulls it all together. There's a lot of interesting players in the story surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus and, and leading up to the resurrection. There was Judas, the betrayer. There are the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are the, the Roman executioners. There's Simon of Cyrene who, who helped carry the cross for Jesus. There's Pontius Pilate. There's the Jewish high priests. And the women of Jerusalem who, who had a ministry of comforting people who were being crucified as they made their way along the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. There are others but today I want to look at the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus through the eyes of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. In your program, there's, 
There's notes, sermon notes that you can follow along with, blanks you can fill in, kind of keeps you engaged. I know if I'm sitting where you're sitting, I like to know how much more is left to come so that <laughs> I get it. I've sat where you sit. And uh, so to me that helps a little bit. Joseph of Arimathea was a hero in our story, but he was not without his faults. My hunch is, is Joseph of Arimathea was a lot like you and me. So who was this Joseph of Arimathea? There's not a, a ton of information about him in the Bible, but there are certain tidbits that we can glean from the pages of, of Scripture. For example, Matthew 27, 57 says, When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. He, he was wealthy, although the source of his wealth is unknown. In addition, Luke 23, 50 says there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, meaning that he was a member of the council, and he was a good man and just. There are lots of people like that, aren't there? Uh, good people, I mean. The headlines are usually grabbed by the scoundrels, like the guy that throws the five-year-old off the third floor of the balcony in the, in the Mall of America. That's what we read on the head, in the headlines. The news magnifies the ne'er-do-wells. But in reality, they're the minority. There are lots of good people. We live with them. We work with them. We interact with them daily in the marketplace of any town USA. Joseph was one of those. He was a good man. The question becomes, how good do you have to be? Most of us are good compared to the worst of people. We can always find someone we compare favorably to. We're not, most of us, the worst that society has to offer. And most of us have done some good things. We're kind sometimes. We're, we're charitable sometimes. And no one's perfect. After all, I'm only human, right? The reality we are all aware of is we, we probably fall somewhere in the middle. We're not Charles Manson, but you ain't Mother Teresa. And so somewhere in the recesses of our mind lurks the nagging question, am I good enough? Am I saved? Will I go to hell? Have you ever asked yourself, what is it that I need to gain heaven? It's an interesting question. Now, stick with me as far as terminology goes. I think we'll come full circle here. Most unsaved people, in, in answering that question, what do I need to gain heaven? Most unsaved people will say you need to be good to go to heaven. Maybe like Joseph of Arimathea was good. He was charitable. He was civic-minded. He was religious. If you ask a Christian the same question, what do you need to gain heaven? They will answer something like faith in Jesus or 
repentance or brokenness or to pray the sinner's prayer or to have an encounter with God or to be born again. And to be honest, the unsaved people are closer to being right. In order to gain heaven, you need righteousness. All the answers the Christians give are how you attain righteousness. The unsaved people are mistaken in that they think they are good. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Every man will proclaim his own goodness. Most people are mistakenly under the impression that they are good enough for heaven. It's hell's great lie. It's the devil's most effective deception when he can convince us, when he can get us to think that I'm good enough for heaven. I'm a good person. In reality, we don't need some degree of good. We need righteousness. And Romans 3.23 makes it clear. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah, the great prophet of old, says, Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Jeremiah 17 reminds us that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We are not holy or righteous or sinless or perfect. Not by any stretch of anyone's imagination. Our hearts are filled with greed and lust and selfish tendencies. We're judgmental. We're proud. We're self-righteous. Romans 10.3 talks about the fatal mistake of trying to be good on our own. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Just think about that first part. We're ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish our own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. Was Joseph of Arimathea good? Are you good? Compared to what? If you're referring to the standard of God, the, the righteousness of God, then, then you and I are far from good. It was Jesus himself who said, it was Jesus himself who said, there is none good but one. And that's God. You need righteousness. And in and of yourself, you ain't God. I know I don't. Well, what else do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? We know he was a silent Sanhedrin. Luke 23, 50, that I read before, it says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. Joseph was a part of the council or the Sanhedrin. They were the group of Jewish religious leaders who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. That's right, another committee hard at it. Joseph, however, as we read at the beginning of verse 51, was opposed to the council's decision. It says, the same had not consented to the council and the deed of them. John 19, 38 says, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, 
but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was a secret follower of Jesus. Mark 15, 43 gives us another interesting factoid about Joseph. It says he was an honorable counselor and also waited for the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us Joseph was not only a good man, but he was looking for the kingdom of God. That means he was waiting for the Messiah. He was waiting for God to send a Savior, the long-awaited hope of the Jews. I, I can only picture the monthly meeting of the Sanhedrin. Someone makes a motion to pursue the crucifixion of Jesus. The, the move is seconded. Some discussion follows. And then the vote. The motion passes overwhelmingly, but not unanimously. There's one vote against. Joseph had not consented to the council and what they were doing. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You have to understand there was a real negative connotation that came with being a follower of Jesus back in the day. If you were a disciple of Jesus, you were deemed a radical. That was bad enough if you were one of the common folk, but if you had hopes of being successful in the political realm or in the religious world, following Jesus was a deal breaker. But something was happening inside Joseph. Perhaps he had hung around the periphery of the gatherings where Jesus spoke. Maybe he was on the outskirts of the crowd, just within the sound of the voice of the one who loved him the way he desperately needed to be loved. Or maybe he was there when Jesus was in the temple debating with the experts of the law and the religious leaders. Regardless of where, somehow, someway, Joseph was beginning to believe Jesus was the answer. The problem was, he was in the silent minority, and the vast and vocal majority was ready to pounce on anyone who proclaimed allegiance to this radical son of a carpenter from Nazareth who made claim to being so much more. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in a similar place. We're disciples but secretly. We've witnessed the intervention of God on enough occasions that, that we're convinced He's real. We may even have seen miracles. Did you know that according to an independent survey, 38% of adults in the United States say they are convinced God has performed at least one miracle for them personally. 38%, I know you start rattling off numbers like this and you kind of glaze over. 38% of the adults in the United States are convinced God has performed at least one miracle for them personally. Not, you know, a miracle somewhere in history. Miracle for them personally. 38%. Now that doesn't sound too impressive until you consider what that means. It means 100 million Americans believe God has performed at least one miracle 
on their behalf. Now let that sink in. But let's get real here. Let's say some of those were just improbable coincidences. Okay? Some of them were just extremely against the odds, things that happened. Somebody attributes it to being a miracle. And let's allow for some religious zealots, some knuckleheads, just totally off the rails, and they make claim to miracles. We'll even throw in people who sincerely just want desperately to believe. And let's say that all those things that we use to discount that 38%, let's say that makes up 99% of the 38% of the adults in the United States that lay claim to a miracle. So let's discount 99% of them. That still means that there's a hundred, that, that still means that there's a million people in the United States that have experienced a miracle. You still have to account for that. Even if we dismiss 99% of those laying claim to a miracle, there are still a million miracles to account for. Many of us would fall into that group. At least, at least we've seen enough to believe in our heart of hearts that there is a God. That's where Joseph of Arimathea found himself. He was beginning to recognize that it was Jesus who connected all the dots and Jesus was the one who helped it all make sense. All of this was becoming increasingly evident to him, but he was, he was not yet ready to, to pay the, the price of full-blown discipleship. He believed, but secretly, for fear of what everyone would think and for fear of what everyone would say. Maybe this is where you find yourself, too. You believe, but secretly. You're not one to proclaim your faith. You're, you're not one to declare your allegiance to Jesus. Well, for Joseph, that was about to change. You can only imagine what Joseph thought as he watched the crucifixion unfold. How could this happen? How could it get so far out of hand that, that Jesus would have to die. As Joseph contemplated all this, he was grieved, I'm sure, by his lack of boldness. How could he let this happen without speaking his mind, without making his case for this Jesus whom he had begun to embrace? He knew it was too late to change the fact that he had been a secret follower. That was before. But that didn't mean he had to remain a secret follower. This was after. And so after the death of Jesus on the cross, Joseph, at great risk to himself and to his reputation, brazenly burst into the office of Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. A little sidelight, Nicodemus a Pharisee who, interestingly, had visited Jesus at night to ask 
questions about the kingdom of God back in John chapter 3, also apparently afraid of the repercussions of openly following Jesus, accompanied Joseph. And together the two were granted custody of the body of Jesus. They prepared the body for burial and placed it in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea and located in a garden near the site of the crucifixion of Jesus. Joseph before was very different from Joseph after. Let me sum up the story in one verse. It's John 19, 38. It says, And after Joseph of, of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, that's before, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and he took the body of Jesus. That's after. So what brought about the change in Joseph of Arimathea. Let me give you three quick hitters. Number one, he saw the love of Jesus. What brought about the change in this Joseph of Arimathea? Number one, he saw the love of Jesus. It, it should serve to remind us that we cannot win others absent of love. Jesus openly demonstrated his love. This is what the crucifixion was all about. And this was transformative in the life of Joseph of Arimathea. And if we're to impact the lives of others, it will be through love. It won't be because we're right. It won't be because we're convincing. We will impact others if we love them enough to care. Joseph of Arimathea witnessed that kind of love in Jesus, and it changed him forever. Number two, he saw the suffering of Jesus. This reminds us that our testimony shines brightest in our darkest hour. I meant to bring my cell phone up here. I got a text from Rhonda. <coughs> I'm sorry, I digress. <coughs> if I turn on my little flashlight here in the, in the sanctuary, it's almost unnoticeable. But if the lights went out, like they did a week or so ago at my house, during the storm, then that one light would be a hope in the darkness. This one light would, would guide us out. This one light would, would guide us all to safety. And, and so it is as you, as you trust Jesus in the midst of your adversity and trial, your light in the darkness leads the way. If everything's going your way, serving Jesus is easy, and who's going to know us? It's when the wheels of your life are coming off and you still praise the name of Jesus. That's when people take note. Your testimony shines brightest, church, in your darkest hour. A third thing that brought about the change in Joseph. So number one was the love of Jesus. Number two was the suffering of Jesus. And number three, 
is that Joseph of Arimathea realized something was required of him. What brought about the change? He realized something was required of him. While it's true, the love of God is unconditional. Keep in mind this. It's the only unconditional thing. Salvation is not unconditional. Something is required of us. Remember that what we need to gain heaven is righteousness. And our path to righteousness is faith. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed, Romans 1.17 says. The rest of this verse should be fascinating, right? For here is how the righteousness of God that we should be pursuing, here's how it's revealed. It's revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Abraham in Romans 4, 3, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. He believed God. He took God at his word. And that's exactly what faith is. And faith is our path to righteousness, which is exactly what we need to gain heaven. It all ties together. When we begin to understand what faith looks like. Faith looks like obedience. If you know God, if you believe God, and if you trust God, then you obey Him. That's the manifestation of faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved. Through faith. When I think of this verse... I think of grace as being God's hand extended toward us from heaven. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is undeserved. Grace is unearned. It's His hand extended to us from heaven. Faith is when we reach up and take His hand. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it says, it's a gift of God. It's not a wage. The wages of sin is death. You earn that. This is a gift. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Joseph believed in Jesus, but secretly. Now he realized his faith required action, or it wasn't faith at all. Joseph of Arimathea saw the love of Jesus. He saw the suffering of Jesus. And now he realized that action was required on his part. He would no longer be a secret follower of Jesus. That was before. This was after. He was ready to take his stand for Jesus no matter what the cost. The crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus was life-changing for Joseph of Arimathea. And he wasn't the only one. We all remember Peter, who went from denying Jesus before the crucifixion to preaching the gospel in Jerusalem to a hostile crowd where 3,000 people were saved after the resurrection. Peter before, Peter after was very different. The half-brothers of Jesus did not believe he was the Messiah before, but after the resurrection they became full-fledged, all-in, sold-out disciples. Before, 
and after. Before the cross, the Christian movement was small. There were but a few converts, scarcely more than a handful. But after the resurrection, everything changed. Before, after. Christianity went from a small group of adherents to a worldwide movement. No other religion has had the impact of Christianity for good. Christianity has changed the world. Christianity changed Joseph of Arimathea, and Christianity changed me. And it can change you. There has to be a before, and there can be an after. Jesus went to the cross to die for your sin. Christianity is the only religion that deals with the sin issue. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the grave and he defeated death. And because he lives, we can live also. And as a result, my life before is very different, very different than my life after. Your life can be different too. Well, how do, how do we get there? It's as simple this morning as A, B, C. A, you admit you're a sinner. It's saying what we talked about early on in the sermon. I fall short. I need a righteousness to gain heaven that I cannot attain on my own. Admit you're a sinner. So B, believe in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, remember, is how righteousness is attained. Remember what it said about Abraham. Abraham believed God. And it was, it was as though it was credited to his account as righteousness. Our actions, we can never be good enough with our actions. Righteousness comes by faith. When we believe God, it's credited to us as righteousness. And finally, see, I commit my life to him. That means I, I repent. It means I, I choose to live according to his plan for my life. I turn from my sin. And I begin to trust Jesus enough to live for him. There's something required on your part. And it's faith. It's trusting that what Jesus has for you will be better than what the world has for you. Before you were lost, after you can be saved. Your penalty for sin was paid on the cross. Death was defeated when Jesus rose from that grave three days later. That's what we celebrate today. Righteousness is what's required. We attain righteousness by faith. And true faith is revealed in our obedience. I'm excited because we scheduled water baptism for next week. And so my hope, my heart's desire would be that today there would be people here that would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and then next Sunday get water baptized. We have a number of people already signed up and I think we do it in a way that, that uh, 
doesn't make a spectacle of you, and yet it's a wonderful public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. And what we do on a baptism, in a baptism service is, is behind that banner there, there's a, actually a baptismal tank. We fill that up with warm water. And while the worship team is playing and while worship is going on at the beginning of the service, we just one at a time have you come down. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to sing a song or juggle. Or, and we water baptize you. And it's an amazing service. In our, and people want it. It's amazing. We believe in the believer's baptism. So we don't baptize infants. We dedicate infants. We believe that before you're baptized, you need to give your life to him. Next week, we're going to do that. Maybe you're new here. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the co-workers, for fear of the family, for fear of what everyone might say. Maybe today's your day. You've seen the love of Jesus. You've seen the suffering of Jesus. And now today you're beginning to realize something is required. I'm not going to follow Jesus secretly anymore. I'm going to kick the door to Pilate's office open. Give me the body of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for for the story of Joseph of Arimathea, it, it, it resonates with us. I think there's many of us that, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus. We believe what he says. We believe in the Bible. We believe all of that. I'm not sure where it takes me. And we're concerned about the family that would react to this, for sure. We're concerned about the people that we work with that would... think something of us. And so we kind of just do it in our own little heart, our own little mind. And then we read this story and it sends a chill down our spine. Lord, I pray you give us the strength and the courage to declare ourselves for you like you declared yourself for us. So Lord, we just receive that from you. I think of that ABC. I admit I'm a sinner. Lord, I know I know I fall short. And so I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then I commit my life to you. If I really believe on you, if I really trust you, then I need to trust you enough to commit my life to you. Begin to live the way you've called us to live. Something's required of us. So Lord, I, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I'm wondering if there's anyone here that would, would say, Tom, boy, that really describes me. Some of that that you said really, really hits home with me. If that's you, I would like you to just slip up your hand while every eye is closed, and just so I can include you in, in the closing prayer. We're not going to, doesn't mean you're joining our church. It just means that you're acknowledging Jesus. I see that hand in the back. God bless you. Thank you on this side. Someone else today? 
story resonates with you, I see that hand in the back in the center. Someone else need Jesus today? You want to receive him as your, your Lord and Savior? Let me ask the rest of the church, if you're a believer, would you pray right now? Would you pray? Would you pray that the Holy Spirit would move in the one whose heart is pounding? The one who knows they need to respond. The one who knows they, they need that something is required of them. The one who, who is saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but up until this point, secretly, where's that one? Lord, I pray you would work in their heart, Holy Spirit. Someone else today, you need Jesus. Slip up your hand. You're saying, Tom, that's me. I want to receive Jesus. One way, I want just one more. One more trip through the kind. I see that hand in the back. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Ma'am, it's a ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. I got the bright light. Someone else today. Someone else today. I see that hand. God bless you, man. Anyone else? Anyone else today? There's a window of time. The window. Now is the day of salvation. You can put it off now. Say I'll do it later. Why not now? You're not guaranteed later. On the back of your connection card, there's a place where you can sign up to be baptized. Just check the box. Make sure we have your phone number on there. We'll call you this week. We'll set up the water baptism during service next week. If you're a believer, you've never been water baptized. Let's do it. Let's do it. Lord, thank you for those that responded. For those that slipped up their hands and said, yeah, that's me. Lord, thank you for salvation. We always say it's free, but it's not free. You paid a heavy price. We receive it by faith. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.